Hello everyone, welcome back to the Manic Manor podcast. This is Mitchie. Today's episode, we're going to go into three more tales from Appalachian folklore and legend. We're going to dive right in today and get started. So the first tale that we will be talking about are the Brown Mountain Lights, located in North Carolina. Now, North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains contain a major mystery that is surrounded with much legend. People who visit the mountains have reported seeing orb-like lights that glow in various colors, such as blue, white, orange, and red. These lights would hover off the ground roughly up to 15 feet in the air and are mainly reported on the grounds of the Brown Mountain area near Morganton, North Carolina. Some of the earliest reports of these lights began in the turn of the century, about as early as 1913, but the first actual reports can be credited back to a young man named Fate Wiseman around 1854. And this would be strange because he would be camping with his father and in the distance of their camp area they would see these flashing lights. Now, around the time of 1854, trains weren't wildly known to be going through that area. Uh, The latest recounting of trains actually being in this area would be 1858, four years later. And it could have made possible sense on what fate saw, but with it being four years prior to any recollection of trains actually being active in that area, it begs some question. Now, some people believe that these lights have a supernatural or ghostly origin, and that makes for all the best legends as we know. Others who are more skeptical will tend to excuse it as um, heavy mineral deposits in the area, or that it's simply a natural wonder that can't be explained. Reports show in October of 1913, a U.S. geological member named Mr. Starrett went to survey this area, and he stayed for a few days to conduct this uh, investigation. However, this was during a time when electricity was becoming more popular, so you would have, you know, street lights being lifted up, and of course people have electricity in their homes, and trains were still a primary transportation source for not just goods, but people as well. So his deduction after staying there for a few days was that the lights were nothing more than headlights on a train that would be passing through that just simply illuminated the entire area. Now, despite this, a lot of locals were not convinced. They refused to believe that it was um, a simple explanation, especially for lights that floated off of the ground and stayed floating. Now, in 1916, a massive flood would hit the area, and the lights were still reported as being seen despite the trains not being able to actually go through because of standing flood waters. And the locals who saw the lights saw them as way more ghostly because of this and now were uh, pretty much 100% convinced that their theory was true, that there was some sort of supernatural being behind it. Now through the years, many local investigators would try to find a source of these lights, but it only added fuel to the mystery of the lights because nobody could exactly pinpoint a proper reason on why these lights would just elevate and stay floating in the area. Maps were drawn of the mountain with areas that the lights were seen in, people would calculate elevations to try to make sense of the mystery, and nothing came from it. Of course, skeptics still stuck by their guns, 
they would say many of these sights could be explained away through the years, such as, you know, headlights from the trains or passing cars or even swamp gas or marsh gas for this region. But even with these more natural reasons, the Brown Mountains, like any other Appalachian area, have their fair share of legends. Now, one legend within this legend is that of um, Cherokee tribe origin. The tale goes to the year 1200. The Cherokee had fought a massive battle near the Brown Mountain against the uh, Catawba, excuse me if I've mispronounced that, tribe. Many warriors perished within this battle, and some locals used this tale to state that the lights are spirits of the warriors or loved ones of these warriors, primarily wives and such, that were searching in vain, even in the afterlife, for their loved ones. Now, another more recent and modern tale was of a young woman who was due to be married. However, a name was never given to this woman, so it's likely just a legend. Now, as she waited at the altar, her fiancé never appeared, and heartbroken from being stood up at the altar, she went out with a torch during the night and searched for him. And of course, as legend states, she never found him. And depending on the tale, either she perished out while searching for him or her spirit, even long after her passing, still haunts the area to this day, illuminating the mountains to find her lost love. And then another tale surfaced of a pregnant woman who was murdered by her husband in a blind, drunken rage. He ended up disposing of her body in the mountains, and after the fact, these lights began to appear and illuminate the way to where she was buried so she and her unborn child could have a proper burial and rest in peace. And the lights continue to appear either because she was never found or to serve as a reminder to those who commit heinous crimes in that area that their darkness will be revealed. And one more um, very controversial tale seems um, way out of date now is that the Brown Mountain was named after a plantation owner who resided in that area in the 1800s. No official name was given to the owner, just that he went by the surname Brown. And of course, with him being a plantation owner, he had slaves in the 1800s. The story claims that he was a kind master to his slaves that he had owned, so he went out to hunt one night and never returned, and one of the slaves who just apparently loved him so much took a lantern to go out and search for him, only for him to never be seen again as well. And the legend says, if you see this light, it's the quote-unquote faithful slave still looking for Mr. Brown. I can take that legend and leave it somewhere far behind because I, I cannot get behind that. Now, that tale is a similar narrative to a legend that is also in West Virginia. So, tales like that was more than likely created to be heard in the South as a means to excuse slave ownership in the past and try to make the actual owners less villainous than what they honestly probably were in history. But despite these tales, 
people still wanted to know what the phenomenon was because legends are just legends and there's no hardcore proof behind it. So in 1922, a serious investigation was done by a man named George Rogers Mansfield. He ended up spending two weeks in the area, drawing all sorts of maps and conducting various studies. And in the end, he stated the lights were not supernatural and chalked it up to fires, train lights, car lights, and lights within homes in that area, much like the previous um, study that had been done. One thing that's a little bit different about his study, though, was he started to give credit to the atmosphere in the area. Um, he considered it to be unstable, very dense. Dense air meant that the bending of light waves could increase and any particles such as dust or mist would scatter and it would create this almost illusion of light to alter. And of course, with this light, the site would be kind of yellowish or red that would align up to some of the reports. Uh, some credibility to this is that the lights are reportedly common after rainstorms, and rainstorms, he said, was one of those conditions that could cause, you know, all of this to bend, all the light to bend, and just kind of look more ghostly than what it was. But still, legends of the ghostly activity were a highly popular reasoning behind it. It spawned numerous references to the lights um, in modern pop culture as well. So you had shows such as The X-Files. They did an episode. Um, the episode's name is Field Trip. And this was the original X-Files show where Mulder stated he had believed the lights were due to UFO activity while they investigated disappearances and deaths of hikers in the Brown or what would be the Brown Mountain area. And, of course, the mountains have also been spoken on shows such as Ancient Aliens and Mystery Hunters. And it even inspired a 2014 alien film called Alien Abduction. Now, one interesting story is of a Morganton resident named Tommy Hunter. He claimed to have actually reached out and touched one of these orbs while at an overlook with six other friends who claimed to be with him and corroborated the story. But of course, hearsay is hearsay. Uh, many people believe that these lights are indeed a real thing and ghostly, but no matter if they're paranormal or there's been like all sorts of paranormal investigation or research, nothing has ever given a true answer to what these lights really are or what the anomaly is. Now, depending on how you believe, you can side with either the, either the skeptics who give a more scientific reasoning behind it, or you can go with the people who tend to be more on the spooky side of things. But there is no doubt that the Brown Mountain Lights are definitely one of North Carolina's spookiest and greatest mysteries and will always remain as such. So we are going to go into the second tale that I have, and this is of the Moon-Eyed People. Now this is a legend that kind of spans over a lot of states, such as the state we just talked about, North Carolina. Um, they're also mentioned in Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee, my home state. No one can really pinpoint the exact origin of how the Moon-Eyed People came to be, much like a lot of good legends that we know of. Uh, but one thing that spans true in all of these tales is um, 
it's so weird. And a lot of people would probably look at this as, this could have just been an easy explanation for early settlers, even earlier than like Christopher Columbus. Um, the moon-eyed people are described as being extremely pale, uh, with large blue eyes, and their bodies are short and round, and sometimes their faces are bearded. So it just sounds like early settlers that were shaded as being rather chunky. The tale speaks of them like a race rather than anything supernatural, which further adds to the proof that people would assume this could have just been um, the surrounding Cherokee tribes describing European settlers in the area. But still, there's kind of a little hint of supernatural element to them, depending on the legends that you hear. Um, they spoke of the, their eyes being so sensitive to the sunlight that they had to be nocturnal. They could only come out at night. Their homes were caves. They were burrowed in underground, or they were in low ground log huts because they had to avoid the sun. When you do the historical study on it, on where these people or beings could have come from, a lot of people credit it uh, to being that of a Welsh legend of Prince Madoc, who set sail with his brother Rerid and some of their followers after being upset with a civil war in his homeland in 1170. So this is before the time of Christopher Columbus. They sailed across the Atlantic and ended up in the area that is now Mobile Bay, Alabama. And he ended up staying in this place and, you know, setting home, moving into the land, making it his own. Now, eventually, Maddock left his brother and followers to go back to his homeland to collect more followers. And that was the last anybody ever heard of them in this tale. The first sights of these quote-unquote moon-eyed people can be tracked to the Creek tribe, stumbling across them as they invaded from south up north um, the length of the Tennessee River. The tribe was stated that they waited until the full moon after they had laid eyes upon this group of people because they believed that the creatures were at their weakest point and would be able to attack them because of the full moon. Now, the creatures, after being attacked, or the race of people being attacked, fleed from this Fort Mountain area in Georgia and stumbled into the Smoky Mountains within Tennessee, never to be seen again. Now, that's just one tale of their origin. Another um, legend spans within North Carolina, where the Cherokee waged a war to drive out the Moon-Eyed people, and of course they ended up being forced into Tennessee as well as the first legend. Both of these tales talk about the moon-eyed people building massive forts to try to protect themselves thereafter, massive stone walls. But Fort Mountain State Park in Georgia is long said to be associated with the moon-eyed people. Like, this is where they first um, put a lot of civilization despite um, the Welsh, Welsh legend being that they were in Mobile, Alabama. And proof of this is um, there is a five, like 850 foot long stone wall within Fort Mountain, which anyone uh, who believes in this legend would say 
the moon-eyed people built in the year spanning from about 400 to 500. So you you got a little bit of um, time frame that's kind of confused. But um, Tennessee Governor John Sevier visited and spoke with Chief Akotosa about a wall in which the chief stated the moon-eyed people from across these great water had built them. Of course, you can easily hear that and assume, once again, European settlers. The wall was built in legend as a way to protect them because they had suffered great violence from all these attacks, particularly from the Creek tribe. So they erected this wall and the wall was measured up to like seven feet high in some parts. Anyone who wants to see the wall can take the Georgia State Park Summit Trail and hike up and it's about a mile and a half towards it. So it's a fairly decent hike. It's fairly relaxing. Um, and when they get to the end of this trail, they'll see the wall, a fire tower, and an absolutely gorgeous view of the mountains. Now some other areas said to have these same ruins are areas of the Little Tennessee River where stone walls that were made similarly are still seen today. It seems to be very interesting how similar, you know, the legend of the Moon-Eyed people were to these European settlers, but even more so the way that the indigenous tribes in the area would describe them. It does make for good legends, whether they were supernatural or not, but a lot of it just kind of seems to be earlier recounts of European settlers on native land. So now we're going into our third and final story today, and this is one of my personal favorites on top of the Bell Witch that we discussed in the first Appalachian Folklore Tales. Um, this is that of the Wampus Cat also known as the Cherokee Death Cat, and lives up to both names given. Of course, it's possible it's not nothing more than a mountain lion or a cougar within the Appalachian region, but the legend in and of itself is incredible. And I remember um, when I was younger, listening to some parents tell their kids, oh, you better behave or the wampus cat is going to get you. So this is a cat that is rumored to be of a larger stature, a little bit larger than a lion or a cougar, with fur that ranges from tan to yellow. But unlike a regular mountain lion or cougar, this cat has six legs and bright, large yellow eyes. An origin story of how the cat came to be is a Cherokee legend as well, where a female was cursed by the elders in her tribe because she witnessed a sacred ceremony and was chased away and as she hid under a pelt of a large cat that was hunted by the tribe, she ended up having this spell cast upon her and was turned into this half-woman, half-cat-like beast that we so famously know today. And in her agony and anger, she was left to wander alone in the mountains, taking out her anguish and pain on anyone who stumbled across her as she mourned for her former life. And the method of attack was to stand on her hind legs, driving victims to the brink of insanity before wailing and attacking. But the name Wampus Cat doesn't actually come from the Cherokee tribe, but a newspaper in North Carolina who reported this Bigfoot-like ape man 
and dubbed him the Wampus Cat in 1964. The name somehow just stuck. The name more than likely comes from the word catawampus in mountain folklore that's meant to describe something going bad or even that of the boogeyman himself. And in Appalachian lore, it's simply known as the wampus cat. Um, but if you go to other places like Missouri, it's been called the galley wampus and in Arkansas, the whistling wampus. But wampus is always within the name of this creature. Now, some other legends mention of a spirit of madness called Iwa that would terrorize the tribes and drive them to the point of insanity simply by looking at them. The tribe mainly mentioned is um, the Etowa uh, Chilta tribe, depending on the version of the tale in what's now North Carolina. Shamans in the uh, tribe would recommend to the chiefs that they needed to send their brave, bravest of warriors to kill this spirit, lest the tribe be completely um, eviscerated. The chiefs, of course, concerned about what was going on and concerned for their young children, declared that something just had to be done. And so they sent their strongest and bravest warrior who would need to go alone. And this would not only save the tribe, but bring great honor to the family as well. Now the unfortunate thing is in this tale, he did not come back the strong soldier that he was. Uh, weeks had passed with no sign of him before he eventually would come barreling back into the tribe in the dead of night, screaming and clawing at his eyes. Uh, now, some legends give a name to this man, and his name was Standing Bear. And he was married. He had a wife by the name of Running Deer in the legend. And she was so upset and so angry, she wanted to seek revenge for her husband's sanity. So she approached the shamans, and the shamans agreed to help disguise her with a bobcat mask which was the mountain spirit in that area. And only this spirit could stand the fight against the madness spirit after their strongest soldier had fallen. So they gave her the mask as well as a special black paste to conceal her scent and body. And with this, she went out to avenge her husband. She followed footprints of the spirit of madness to where the spirit had been lurched over a creek drinking water, and once she was close enough, she preceded her attack against the spirit. And with her being in the mask of the spirit of the mountain, it frightened the spirit of madness, which in turn clawed at itself until it fell within the water, subsequently meeting its end. When she arrived back home, the shamans and the chiefs declared her to be a spirit talker and the protector of their home, where the legend spans that she ended up morphing into what is now the Wampus Cat, protecting her land from anyone or anything that she deems a threat. Now, because of the influence of mountain spirits for this legend, the abilities of the cat are definitely supernatural in nature. Some of these are that the cat can emit this blood-curdling scream to ward off threats, uh, the wampus cat also has exceptional speed and agility due to it having six, uh, six legs, as well as the ability to either turn invisible or shapeshift. 
Now, in pop culture today, the Wampus Cat is seen in series such as the Harry Potter universe that discusses wands being made with Wampus hair and Wampus being a house name for the witchcraft and wizardry school in America. We also see the cat holds a favorable spot as a mascot for a lot of schools across the United States like Atoka High School, um, Itasca High, and Leesville High. But personally for me, I've seen people within my family, like I said, use the wampus cats as a means to just get their children to behave, saying that only naughty kids would get a visit from such a cat. But that will do it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed, and if you have any other comments or if there's something that I have gotten wrong that you would like to correct, please feel free to let me know. Um, you can reach out to me at manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out on Facebook or Instagram at manicmanorpodcast, as well as letting me know in the YouTube version of this episode. If you feel so inclined to um, support the podcast so we can continue to create content and make better content, I do have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. It's um, Manic Manor Podcast Mm -hmm. as well, but it's never necessary for anybody to do so. But anyways, thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. And as always, I hope you have an amazing week and stay safe out there. Bye-bye.